Good morning, beloved. Yeah, it's good to see you. Uh, it's good to be together to worship our God and King. Um, something that I really, really enjoy are vehicles, uh, or is vehicles. Um, some of my favorite vehicles happen to be motorcycles, and I've actually had a couple motorcycles in my life. Um, I do not anymore, because that's just bad for me. Um, but yeah, I know, right? Thank you. Somebody had some sympathy there. <laughs> I just want a little more sympathy here that I, I actually at one point had my dream motorcycle. Like I, I got to the point where I really like cafe racers, just something about that kind of like retro, minimal style. Like it's, I love it. And so um, I spent a long time looking for an old like 80s Honda CV 550 and I was gonna like rebuild it and everything. And then I put together the, the cost of what that would like, actually look like and realized I could just buy a new Triumph Thruxton R when they had just come out. That was like the most beautiful motorcycle, still is the most beautiful motorcycle in the world. And so I saved up and I bought one. Like I had that motorcycle. Like of all the motorcycles in the world, I had the one that I wanted most. And I loved it. I still love it and still wonder where it is. But, you know. <laughs> Anyway, I want to tell you about a day that uh, I, got a, I got a notice that there was a safety recall on it. It needed some work done, and so I had to drive it back to the dealership. And so I timed this out because I, looking on their website, saw that this dealership was going to have a demo day. Um, a demo day is where you can go and you can ride different motorcycles and just to try them out and everything. And I had heard about this particular type of motorcycle that was just kind of fascinating to me. They were designed to be used by the British... Um, military in foreign countries, and so they're just super minimalist. They're supposed to be like incredibly easy to change around, reconfigure, and just work on them, and I like that kind of thing. I like minimalism, and so I was like, I really want to ride one of those motorcycles. I won't tell you the name because this is a bad story for their brand, um, but <laughs> I, I'm, so I ride there with a few of my friends who are also on motorcycles. We ride over to the dealership. I give them my motorcycle so they can do the safety recall work, all that stuff. And uh, meanwhile, we go up to the front. We're like, hey, we want to do the demo on these motorcycles. I'm like, all right. So they take us out front. There's a handful of different models from this company. And so there's one that's kind of like their sporty one, the, the, the cafe racer style one. And I was like, I'm riding that one. I call it. And everybody's like, okay, you get it and everything. And so I get on that one. I crank it up and everything. And they have one of their guys is going to lead the way. Like he's going to take us on their route that's supposed to go around this lake and all this stuff. And it's going to be pretty and everything. And so I crank it up. And like within seconds, it stalls. I was like, oh, that's weird. I'm like, okay. So I recrank it. And so that guy's in front of me. On motorcycles, it's generally a little loud and you have helmets on and so you can't hear a whole lot and so I'm like, oh, hopefully they didn't hear that because that's kind of embarrassing, like I stalled the motorcycle. We start to take off and we go to the edge of the parking lot to turn onto the road and as I let the clutch out, it stalls again. I'm like, Kevin, this is embarrassing. Like, you know how to drive a motorcycle. You just rode one here and it stalls again. It stalled two or three times and so I'm starting to think like, something's wrong with this motorcycle. Like, it can't be me. Something's wrong with this motorcycle. And so we take off and we finally get onto a highway where it's like 55 mile an hour speed limit. And as we start to accelerate, I get up and I don't know how fast I'm going. I'm not going 55 miles an hour, but I'm, I'm going relatively fast, like accelerating, following this guy. And all of a sudden, with no warning, the motorcycle shuts off and doesn't just shut off and start coasting. The back wheel locks up like the engine has seized. And so all of a sudden, I feel this thing sliding. There's smoke roiling everywhere. And I was like, ah! And the thing with motorcycles, 
motorcycles, if you pull the clutch in and let the back wheel spin again, if it's not perfectly lined up, then you're gonna high side. It's going to catch again and throw you. So I have enough sense to know, like, just ride it out. And so I'm flying, like, and grinding to a stop. There's smoke going everywhere. I'm second in line, so all my buddies are swerving around me like, you idiot! <laughs> and so, but like, I come to a stop, my heart's pitter-pattering just a little bit, and everybody circles back around, and I'm like, what are you doing? What was that? I'm like, I don't know. It stopped on its own, like, it shut down and locked up on me. And the, the guy who's leading the pack is like, it's a brand new motorcycle. We just took it out of the crate two days ago and put it together. There's nothing wrong. You got to learn how to drive and all that stuff. And he's just going on. I'm like, no, something's wrong with the motorcycle. And he's like, whatever. So he calls. They bring a trailer and they take the motorcycle and give me another one. We finish the ride. And all the while I'm being like, I'm, I'm not that bad of a motorcycle rider. <laughs> like, something's wrong with the motorcycle. And we get back, and I'm talking to them, and their mechanics are looking at it and everything, like, there's nothing wrong with this thing. I'm like, no, there's something wrong with that thing. <laughs> like, I know there's something wrong with it, but it wouldn't believe me. Wouldn't believe me. Like, have you been there? Where somebody just won't believe you about something. And so, um, this just did wonders for my pride, but... <laughs> Uh, we leave a while later on my motorcycle, and as we're leaving, we make it a couple miles down the road, and guess who's on the side of the road on a broken motorcycle? That mechanic who would not believe me. It's like, beep, beep. Yeah. You believe me now, huh? Have you ever shared something that people just wouldn't believe? Like, it's rough. You're like, no, you, you gotta believe me here. Or have, have you had something shared with you that you just couldn't believe? Like, we all know what that's like. There's a tension in that. And so I want us to take that tension to the text that we're going to cover today. And we're going to cover two stories that are actually um, parallels in many ways. And so we are in our new series, Certainty, the Gospel According to Luke. So if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 1 in your copy of Scripture, Luke chapter 1, we'll pick up where we left off in verse 5. So Luke chapter 1, verse 5 um, remember, Luke is writing this, and we established last week that Luke is this Gentile doctor, most likely, who's writing to most honorable Theophilus. And so he's writing to him because he wants him to have a certainty about the things that he has been taught. He wants them to have a certainty about the gospel. And that's a beautiful invitation to us, that we can have a certainty about these things, that we can question things, we can go through forms of deconstruction and all that stuff, but there's a healthy way to do that in which it can actually land us in a certainty. So here we go in verse five, picking up. So uh, remember this is a narrative. We start the narrative now. Verse five, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. In other words, they were old people. So past childbearing years, um, here we have Zechariah. Um, his name, it actually means Yahweh has remembered again. Could be significant as we go along, but Zechariah, whose name means Yahweh has remembered again. Yahweh is this, this name that we give to um, the one true God. Often it's translated as the Lord in all caps, if you're reading uh, some of the, the more contemporary versions of scripture. But Yahweh is the one true God who's revealed himself to Israel. And so Yahweh has remembered is Zechariah. And so he is a priest. Um, he is old. He has a barren wife. 
Elizabeth, she cannot conceive, and so they have no children, and you need to know the cultural implications of this, the social implications of this, the accusations that would come with this, that if you don't have children in this day and age, then you're kind of like living under reproach. Like people would, would think like, hmm, you must have done something wrong. Because it's like a curse to not have children. Because this is prior to the industrial revolution where we saw a shift. And so um, I, I used to teach advanced placement human geography, and so I'm gonna geek out on you here, but the demographic transition model is this idea that nations go through five theoretical stages. And so before the, the huge shift, the, the just crazy curve, exponential curve of technology hits, this is think like agricultural revolution and, and all of that time, having children means having laborers. And so if you want wealth, if you want to accomplish more, you need more children because they can contribute. Whereas after the, the industrial revolution and we start to see more advanced technologies, now we live in a time when we actually want fewer and fewer children. Nations like Japan actually have a negative population growth because they're having more like one child for every two parents instead of two or more, which would lead to a higher population. So think back now. In this first century time, this context, Zechariah and Elizabeth cannot have children. And so they don't have a lot of wealth. There are not a lot of hands on deck, so to speak. He's a priest, and so he's living really on just what is provided through the offerings. What would be allotted to him and what they can accomplish on their plot in the Levitical family. Uh, the Levites were this tribe. And so you have the 12 tribes of Israel and the, the Levites were always given allotments to provide for them. And so this is a family who is not going to have a lot of means, not going to have a lot of wealth. And people would look on them and think, mm, you don't have any kids. Like, what will be your legacy? Who will carry your name? Who will take care of you when you're old? All these different questions. And so this would feel like social reproach. You pick up in verse eight. When his, meaning Zechariah, when his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And so he's a priest, remember? And so the, the priests were actually divided at this time into 24 divisions. The priests were divided into 24 divisions. Each one would serve in the temple for two one-week periods a year. That's excluding festival times. And so if you were a priest, you were part of the Levites, the, the priestly tribe, then the men would serve as priests, but there's a lot of them. And so you would actually serve two times a year for a one-week period, where it's just like, you're on call. And so you're like, oh, well, that's quite the job, right? <laughs> like, hey, you gotta work two weeks out of the year, maybe a little bit more if you're called up for a festival. But this, there, there's a lot of other stuff that they're doing. They're, they're still doing things to provide for each other and all that stuff. But he comes to the temple for these two weeks out of the year to serve for a week at a time. And so there are 24 divisions of the priests, but then that division was further divided into orders, and those orders would rotate the daily sacrifices and services of the temple to keep things going in order. And so... You got a lot of priests here. In fact, they would think that um, these orders are now consisting of four to nine houses or families of priests. So it's like huge, let's divide it up into 12, let's divide that up into different things. Like, and it keeps going smaller and smaller. And then you, um, most, most scholars think that at this time there would be about 18,000 priests. 18,000 priests. And I share all of that weird information because he is chosen by lot, meaning like, he drew the short straw. 
you got chosen. You played the game of odds in the midst of all of these priests. He's an old man, and you only get to do this once in your lifetime. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event for a priest. He has made it to his elder years to where now, out of the 18,000 priests, it has come down to, it is your turn, Zechariah. It's your turn. This is significant for him. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event. Like, imagine his excitement. Like, ah, it's finally happening. I'm going to go into the holy place, which is like one step removed from the holy of holies. You have kind of like, there's this inner room and there's the innermost room where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so he's like one step away from where only the high priest is gonna go once a year. And he gets to offer incense in here. This is huge. And so he would be excited. It's finally happening. It's my turn. I get to do this. But also the pressure. Like, you get one shot. <laughs> Don't let that candle blow out before he put that flame on. <laughs> like, like, the excitement, the pressure, just imagine being him. You made it to this point in your life, and so much of your life now you've lived thinking like, man, what did we do wrong? Like, everybody looks down on us. Like, this is my day. I get to go in and light this candle, go offer this incense. In verse 10, at the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Rightly so. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, you come in and you're all excited and you're nervous, like, don't screw this up, don't screw, like, you've been training for this your whole life. This is your moment, Kevin. And you walk in there and doing your thing, like, shaky, like, oh, I'm not gonna mess this up. And you look up and there's an angel. <laughs> have you, I, I'm weird, I don't, I, I'm gonna just confess that to you, I know that, but like, have you had those moments where you're like praying to God? It's like, it'd just be so nice if I could see you right now. And then you think like, but what if I did? <laughs> what if I actually saw you? <laughs> if I open my eyes right now and you're staring at me, like, I'm gonna freak out. <laughs> like, this is his moment. Like, Zechariah is here, and like the pressure of this moment, lighting the candle, gonna say the prayers, and you just imagine him like, well, what? Like, it's, it's terrifying. There's an angel here right in front of him. I would be terrified too. But also consider the context. That this is happening in the first century. That if you know the storyline of the scriptures, you have God talking in these theophanies to people and it seems like it's happening one after the other and, and mind you, I'd, I would actually want to correct that view for us that if, if you think even Old Testament times, it's pretty rare that you get these experiences and so it's, it's easy for us to think like, oh, it'd be so nice to be like, no, like they're, they're hearing about when their great-great-great-grandfathers talked to God and things like that too. So, but imagine now, Malachi, the last of the prophets, has closed out and there has been 400 years of silence. The prophets are no longer speaking. We've heard nothing from God. We got all of these promises of God that from exile, and we're kind of being brought back, and like we're just living under the oppression of one empire after another throughout all this time. But God has made promises that the Messiah, the chosen one, is gonna come restore the Davidic throne. We will have a king again. We will be a people. He will prosper us. He will be our God. He will be with us. All these promises, they're holding on to that and it has been 400 years of nothing. And then here's Zechariah in a temple knowing 
that it's been quiet for so long, but we keep doing this believing, we keep doing this and believing, and then, whoa, there's an angel. Someone just showed up in the room, and I'm scared. Like, imagine this moment for him, what this would be like, and he is terrified, understandably. So we keep going, and this is verse 13. He says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. This is what every dad wants, right? Like, this is good news. This is such good news. He's scared, but now he can calm because he's receiving good news. Like, why would an angel show up? You guys, like, the whole heavenly host, like, God, you've been quiet for 400 years, and now someone shows up. What did I do? <laughs> Are you about to tell me why I live in this condition? What's going on here? And now the angel is like, hey, it's okay. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I actually bring good news. You're gonna have a son. You're gonna have a son. And so this is good news for him personally. Like this is gonna, this is gonna change our life, Elizabeth. We're gonna have a boy. We're gonna name him John, he told me so. But this is not just good news for him, this is good news for everyone, that our boy is gonna do well. Like let's take that back to the personal part. Like I'm a father, many of you, parents, how nice would it be to know with certainty before your child is born Look, just, hey, they're gonna be a positive contributing member to society. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> like, imagine the relief there. Like, I'm kind of jealous of that, right? But it's beyond that. It's not just like, hey, he's gonna be a good kid. He's gonna grow up and be a great man. It's no, he's, he's actually preparing the way for the one that's been promised. This is gonna be a blessing to everyone. Like, this is good news. This is such good news. It goes beyond just the good news of you having a child. It's what this child will do. This child will prepare the way. He will be the fulfillment of prophecy. He's going to make ready a people for the promised Messiah that God is coming. And your son gets to prepare the way for him. Like what a privilege. What joy this would bring Zechariah. And so now watch how Zechariah responds. Verse 18. Uh, how can I know this? What? <laughs> How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. What is Zechariah's response to good news? Doubt. That he questions it. Hmm. What? Really? You know how old I am? You know how old she is? <laughs> How's this going to happen? The angel, what does he do? He gives him assurance. Isn't that grace? He gives him assurance. The assurance of a sign. And that sign feels kind of like a rebuke. And in a sense, it is. But it's also an assurance. How will I know that this is true? 
let me give you a sign. You can't talk anymore. And you won't talk until this boy is born. You'll be mute. He gives them this sign of silence. And so um, consider, this just got me so excited. I, I love things like this. It's got me so excited. When I realized this, like consider the irony here. That Zechariah, after 400 years of silence, is the first to hear a divine message. And he doubts. And what is the sign given to him? Silence. Silence. Believe me that I'm working even in the quiet. And watch as your wife's stomach starts to expand. And all you can live out is silence, but you know that I'm working. Isn't that a comfort to us in our quiet days? When it seems like God is absent and not responding to know oh, I'm working even in the silence. And sometimes I may even force the silence on you. You just know that I'm working. This joy. All right, verse 21, we continue on. Meanwhile, so remember, he's in the temple. He's supposed to be offering this incense, and so all this is happening. Now he can't talk. The angel has appeared, and he's got this message, like your son's gonna be awesome. He's gonna prepare the way for someone who is far more awesome. Um, and so verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed, slash terrified probably, that he was stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Ah, <laughs> it was a certainty. Whether Zechariah believed it or not, it was as good as done. This was going to happen. It was certain whether he believed or not. And note how Elizabeth saw this. Look what the Lord has done for me. In his favor, his mercy, his grace toward me, he's taken away my reproach. He's changed my life, giving me a son. And we don't really know why she stayed hidden for five months. Maybe it was the fear of like, what if this goes wrong and, and I lose the child? I, we don't know. But regardless, like, she was rejoicing in this. This is good. And so we're gonna continue on. You just need to know this is a busy season for angels. So verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was, you guessed it, Mary. Cue the Christmas music. Mary has an angelic appearance. She, she's engaged to this guy named Joseph. And so what is that? Um, Mary is a young lady. And so just know this, in Jewish culture, first century Palestine, um, women are, we're gonna call her a girl. Like girls would get married as young as 12 years old. And so Mary is likely 12 to 18 at best guess, like probably on the lower end of that. So this is a young girl, a like teenage girl who receives an angelic appearance. Gabriel has been sent, now you're going to Mary, but she is betrothed, she's engaged to Joseph. And so we have to understand, this is a virgin girl. You're like, wait a second, she's betrothed to Joseph, so it's like she's engaged, she's a virgin, okay, that makes sense, but what is this? Like, what is a betrothal? Where did Joseph go? Like, where is he at in the midst of all this? And this will actually help you understand a lot of Jesus' teachings, and even the period that we're in right now as we wait for the consummation of our marriage to the Lamb. In Jewish culture, there's a two-stage marriage. 
So the husband would come and be betrothed to the wife, and in doing that, that was kind of like when you stand before the officiant who has the legal authority to say, I pronounce you husband and wife, you exchange the legal vows. The covenant, the terms of the covenant are stated. You enter into this form of marriage to where you are now formally betrothed, you are legally united, and yet the husband would then leave Having left his bride with her family, he would go back to his family's home and he would prepare a house. Often it was adding another room to his parents' home because they live more like in a compound. And so cue the words of Jesus, hey, it's good for me to go away. If I go away, I go to prepare a place for you and my father's house. Like, whoa, that's amazing. And so the husband would leave for usually about a year, prepare a place for his new family, and then he would come back. And the the wedding party is meant to receive them. You remember the parable? Be ready. The groom is coming to receive the groom. And so the wedding party would receive the groom. He comes, he takes his bride, brings her, and now you have this long ceremony that's a huge party, usually about a few days to a week long. You have a massive celebration and they consummate the marriage. Parents, you know what that is, all right? So that's how the marriage would work in two stages. And so Mary and Joseph are in the first stage. They're waiting for the consummation of the marriage. That has not yet happened. But they have the legal vows have been exchanged. The bride price has been paid. It is set. They're going to be united. But this is a period where Joseph could back out if you know the rest of the story. So they have not yet consummated the marriage. So here we go. Um, We're going to pick back up in verse 28. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. This is good news. Mary receives some news. It's the news that the whole nation has been waiting for. All the people of God have been waiting for this news. They've been waiting for the arrival of the one, the Messiah, the chosen one. He will be Mary's son. Could you imagine being this young girl, a virgin, who is now told, you're gonna have a son. And he's actually going to be the son of the most high. He will be great. He's the one who has been promised. He's going to deliver all of God's people from their sins, from oppression, from all of this insanity. He is the one you've been waiting for. Mary receives the news. She is going to give birth to this son, and he's to be named Jesus. Verse 34, watch Mary's response. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. She's related. Even she has conceived a son in her old age and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. Do you see the difference? John doubted what the angel said. He doubted the possibility of this happening. Mary does not doubt the possibility of this happening. She just asks, how? How is this going to happen? I have not consummated my marriage with Joseph. I've not had the activities required for this to come about, for me to have a son. And the angel says, no, no. 
the power of the Most High will come upon you. The Spirit will conceive life in you. This will be truly the Son of God. She's a virgin. This, this is actually so important. The doctrine of the virgin birth is crucial for our salvation. Because in doing this, what has happened is sin from Adam has been imputed. It is genetic. And so the whole born this way idea, yes. We are born genetically predisposed to sin. And you can take that in so many ways, but you need to just understand it is clearly biblical that we don't have to teach our kids to sin. It is in us. It is imputed from Adam and spread to all men. But now there is Jesus, who Joseph does not have the opportunity to impute that sin. He is conceived by the Spirit. And so he does not have the imputed sin, and yet he is truly man. This is the God-man. It's called the hypostatic union in geeky terms, but this is God himself, fully divine and fully human, Jesus. But he does not have the sin that we have inherited because he is God's son. This is incredible. So Mary is receiving this explanation, and then verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. Elizabeth suddenly becomes a prophet. She's in the spirit, she feels John inside of her, hears the sound of the Lord's mother's voice and he jumps inside of her. He's excited the Spirit already so filling John to do his calling that he jumps at the sound of Mary's voice, already doing his job. His job is to make ready the way for the Messiah. And, and there's this ongoing contrast here of one is clearly greater than the other. And you have to see the beauty of this. John is excited about Jesus because John makes ready the way and Jesus is the way. And so he's excited there's this excitement as Mary and Elizabeth come together and now watch how Mary responds. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three months, then she returned to her home. In English, it doesn't read quite like a song, but this was a hymn that Mary sang that Mary's response in all of this was praise, was to sing to the Lord, to be overwhelmed with his grandeur. This is known largely as Mary's Magnificat, which is Latin based on the first word in there. The major action is magnify. Um, come, let us magnify the Lord. Or my soul magnifies or praises the greatness of the Lord. That worship is the appropriate response to good news. 
that it incites worship. And the themes throughout this song is that God is the mighty one and he does what he pleases. And what he pleases is that he will overthrow the mighty and he will exalt the lowly. That this is the God of our salvation, that he would take the childless one and give a child. And that child would prepare the one who is so much greater, that the son of God would come, that he would be the outstretched arm and hand of God to bring about our salvation, to recover his people, to redeem his people, and it would actually be through nails piercing those hands, those arms outstretched on a cross. But Mary doesn't know yet how this will play out, and yet she has a certainty in this that God is our salvation. God acts salvifically in his mercy, not for what we deserve, but in mercy and grace. He has favor, he acts in mercy. But I love just the certainty of Mary, that she has a confidence in how she speaks about what is actually the future, and yet she's talking about it like it has already happened. It is a done deal. It is as good as done. And so you have to contrast that with how Zechariah responded to his news. The Zechariah doubts in that moment, and yet Mary has a confidence, a certainty, knowing that her God will do what he has said. So the bottom line is you have to respond to news. You open your phone and you start scrolling through the news. You turn on the TV and you see the news. You open the newspaper, whatever it is. When you see news, you have to respond to that. You can either believe it or not believe it. And we live in a day and age, I know, like the whole fake news idea, like I don't know what to believe. But you always have to make a decision how you're gonna respond to news. And the gospel is news. The gospel is good news that you have to respond to. In fact, Mary's song here is the good news that you have to respond to. That you need a salvation, I need a salvation that is outside of what I can do or you can do. That we are at the mercy of God and he is merciful. And in his strong arm, the mighty one will come and he will rescue us in his mercy. He will exalt the lowly and we are the lowly. We have nothing. What can we do? And yet it's when we acknowledge that we have nothing and we lay down our lives and we say, okay, I will die with you in your death, Jesus, so that I can rise to new life with you as well, believing, trusting you to be my salvation. It is then that we are exalted with him. So will you trust him? What will you do with this news? Will you respond to the news? You know, when I I had that motorcycle breakdown and they just would not believe me, that mechanic was emphatic that there was nothing wrong with it, he put it together. And he was confident, fully certain that there's nothing wrong with this thing, and then he took it for a test ride? He did not believe my news. And you know what happened? He dealt with the consequences. Do you know, you have to respond to the gospel. You have to make a decision. What will you do with this news? The good news of Christmas, that God has come to do what you cannot do, and that is provide salvation for you. To be your righteousness, to cover your sin with his own blood, to be your atonement, which I love uh, William Tyndall, he, he actually translated this word atonement um, from, from another language, and when he decided to put it into English, he, he just basically said like, I'm kind of at a loss. So think about the word, atonement, at one meant. <laughs> it's really what it means, to be at one. That is what God has done, so that we can be one with him, we can be reunited with God, and the atonement, the covering of Jesus. This is good news. You cannot save yourself. You are dead in sin. 
but God is gracious and merciful and he has made a way for you to come alive by sending his son. What will you do with that news? And the reality is you can believe that news and respond and know that there is life and joy forevermore to be united with God or you cannot believe it and know that it will be so much worse than being on the side of the road with a broken motorcycle. It is actually to receive what is due to us, the very wrath of God, because he is holy and he is just. There will be punishment. We will have to face God and give an account for what we have done. But you can face him on that day with a certainty and a confidence and a joy of knowing Jesus has paid the debt that I can never pay. And I love you. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Or you can come on that day and try to point to whatever you think you have done that is good. And you're standing before a holy and perfect God. It will not be enough. You could never do enough good. But he is merciful. This is good news. So how will you respond to this news? Do you know the certainty of Christmas? It's just what does it look like for you to respond to the good news of Christmas? Can you have a hope and a belief, a confidence, a certainty? Like this is a season of hope and joy and all these things, but, but maybe you're wrestling with like, I just don't feel hope about this relationship or this scenario in my life, this whatever it is. How do I, how do I have such a confidence, a certainty like Mary? How can I do that? I'm gonna conclude with this. It's just a challenge for you. Mary's song, if you go back into the Old Testament, sounds a lot like Hannah's song. Hannah was the mother of a prophet, Samuel. And when Hannah was old and barren and had no children and she was praying, and a priest actually thought she was this drunk old lady, like, get out of here, you drunk old lady. She's like, no, I'm crying and I'm praying because I've never had a son. Like, oh, well, he prays for her. She has a son. And she commits him to the Lord's service but she breaks out into a song. And Mary makes a song that sounds a lot like Hannah's song. Go parallel them this week. And the beauty of that is that we can see the reason that Mary had such a certainty is because she was so immersed in the word of God that the natural language that would come out in a song in such a time are the very words of God that have been written down and preserved for her to cherish. And imagine this young girl who would cherish these women of the Old Testament as saints, as faithful examples of what it is to follow after the one true God. And she knew the words so much so that when she would sing in moments that there could be overwhelming doubt and said the song that comes out is a song from God himself. So if you want more certainty, feast on the word of God. Hear it. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you so much for the way in which you love us. You are great and mighty. Nothing can stay your hand. And by your mighty hand, you have provided salvation to us. So God, as Mary talked about what would be the future with such a confidence and certainty as if it had already happened, God, we look back to the, the realization of your love for us and that you sent your son Jesus who died for us. And we celebrate you sending him this season, God, and thank you for that. Would you grow our faith, give us a confidence, a boldness, a certainty to know the things about which we have been taught. Thank you for your love. 
We love you again and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.